welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I've got a few things in store for you, some things that I've been reminded of lately that we're going to have to talk about, and you won't want to miss this discussion. It's going to be far-ranging from careers to Twitter to perhaps even some critical appraisal. You won't want to miss it. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. First, back in December on Twitter, I went on there and I had a little bit of a thread. Here's what I said. I said, many, many recent podcasts and tweets in medicine are on careers in academic medicine, and they're obsessed with careerism over scholarship. So here's a distinction I want to draw. I say, on one hand, there's a lot of careerism. What is careerism? How can I give more lectures? How can I get more followers? How can I sit on more panels? How can I become known? How can I consult for money? How can I network? How can I be successful? So it's all about sort of the traditional brass rings um, of academia, the sort of the accolades that, that come with a career in academic medicine. I went on. I said, careerism is poison. People advise the same arbitrary benchmarks that they themselves achieved, empty brass rings. And then I said, focus instead on what you want to accomplish, what issues matter to you, what topics interest you? What skills do you uniquely bring to work on them? This, I think, I'll put in the other bucket, scholarship. Is your work accurate? Does your work matter? Is it really what you want to do with your life? Are you making an impact? Are you replaceable? And then, is there anyone whose work you admire? You know, so, so often in these discussions on careers, people just talk invariably about how do you get the poster and the presentation and this and that and the other, and it really bores me, and it kind of makes me really, I don't know... It, it, it makes me really concerned because I think it's a natural human tendency that um, you quickly confuse the accolades for the doing the thing that matters itself. Uh, so I, I kind of wanted to reorient people on this thread. So I say, you know, think about the work itself. What is the work you want to do? And to be honest with you, in my, in my observation of many people, there are a lot of people I encounter in, in research that they admit that they don't feel very strongly about their work, that they're just doing it because that's the thing for which they got grant funding and uh, they don't really care about it. And I think that makes me very sad because I guess I would say that, you know, the entire reason, obviously, I do plenary session and I'm on Twitter and write these articles is that, you know, like it or not, you know for sure that there's a handful of things that VP cares a great deal about. Those are the use of surrogate endpoints for regulatory decisions, how clinical trials are appraised, how we move from research to the clinic. Uh, it's not many things in the world, but those are things I care a lot about. And, uh, and I couldn't imagine doing the research if I didn't really care that much about the topic itself. Um, and uh, it would be so, so empty. So I, I really feel sad that 
there are people out there who I encounter, um, and they, they tell me things like this. And, and I see it sometimes in the work where, you know, they're just um, sort of dispassionate about it. And, and a lot of it is on topics that one struggles to understand how anyone might be very interested in, particularly in health policy, where it can get really esoteric really quick. Okay, so then I make a side note in my tweet. I say, if you admire someone and see them as a role model, how many papers of theirs have you read? And if the answer is none, you just admire their position, not them, and that's bad. Now, of course, this tweet got a little bit of pushback because people were quick to point out that, um, you know, you're saying uh, papers, but there are a lot of people in academic medicine who do great work who don't publish papers. And uh, that's absolutely the case. And, of course, um, you know, I wish I could have made it. I wish I could edit this tweet. But what I really want to say here is that, you know, when you admire someone, there's two reasons why you admire them. There are uh, the trappings of their position and there are the things they do. And if you think you admire them for the right reasons, the things they do, um, but if they're a researcher, you haven't really read their papers, um, that makes me fear that that's not really why you admire them. You admire them for the position they have. Similarly, if they're an excellent clinician and you admire them because you know you saw at the graduation ceremony that they won some award from the students or they won some teaching award, uh, that would be the wrong reason to admire them. The right reason would be, of course, if you've rounded with them and, or you've gone to a morning report with them and you actually have come to believe that they're a consummate clinician. Similarly for teaching. I mean, I think that people can get reputations as being a good teacher, um, that they're, uh, I think people can be, get a reputation for being a good teacher and people can admire the fact that they have the reputation for being a good teacher, even though that person has never attended their lectures or gone to their class or see what's all this teaching about. And I guess I would say, admittedly, that there are some folks I've encountered who are quote unquote good teachers or masters of the tutorial. And when I go through some of the tutorial, I disagree with a lot of the content of it. I think that there are uh, slights of hand and just so stories and things that are technically inaccurate and omissions of important history. And so uh, thus I would say that they're not really a good teacher unless they're goal of teaching is to teach things that are incorrect. And so in that respect, uh, I can see how people can even even come to admire someone as a teacher when they are not in fact a good teacher simply because they are being praised for being a good teacher. So, you know, no matter what dimension you want to slice it, um, there is a difference between admiring the thing that this person is supposedly doing well and admiring the things they're supposedly uh, accumulating or benefiting from uh, that perception of their job. And it is so easy and natural uh, to confuse the two. And I'm going to come to the end of this, you know, why I think it's important not to confuse the two. Um, okay, then I go on in my tutorial. Uh, after you come up with a tentative answer for what's the sort of work you really want to do, uh, then you got to seek out folks who are brutally honest. Uh, does the work matter? Um, you know, so many times that somebody tells me about a project they're working on, I can tell they care about the topic, but the particular project they picked is something that, you know, I might argue that it just simply doesn't matter. I mean, you find one way or you find the other way, so what? You know, I ask them, so what? So what's going to be different? What do you, what do you think is going to change? Or does it point to a different direction, you know? Um, the next thing I like to think about is, is, is it doable? I can't tell you the number of times somebody comes to me and tells me something that I think is wonderful. And I can see they're excited about it, but I have no idea how to do it. And, uh, and I think uh, the doability of a project matters a great deal. And then the final thing, which I think is very tricky, which is that the, should I do it? I think it's super tricky because, like, I'm a believer that um, many people have many different sets of skills. And, you know, one of the problems, I think, in society is that we have a very narrow lens by which we 
we value certain skills. And one particular skill set is, is super valued, which is sort of analytical thinking, and that's a super valued skill. Um, but that's not the only skill. And there are many other uh, dimensions of, of talent and skill and intelligence, uh, not just analytical thinking. Um, but the real question is, is the unique skill set you're bringing to the, to the problem um, something that makes you uniquely qualified to work on it? And I think I discussed this earlier in, in plenary session when there was a episode and a great quote by Ja Lu from MSKCC about somebody, uh, a physicist saying that, you know, you've got to focus on problems that you're uniquely talented to focus on. Um, and then I say this in, in my in my thing, academic medicine is 100% not worth pursuing if your goal is careerism. There are too many frustrations. It's only worth doing if you are seriously interested in the work itself. Um, and I think that's so true. I mean, particularly for the folks in academic medicine who happen to also be clinicians, because, you know, in many cases, you're taking a huge pay cut compared to what you could make in the private sector, just, you know, seeing patients in a clinic. And, uh, and you're doing it with, uh, in a setting that uh, is often soft money dependent and, you know, has so many, so many painful things, uh, soft money dependency, uh, promotion system that uh, puts people in leadership positions, not based on leadership skills, but based on how much NIH funding they've managed to accumulate, NIH funding that uh, doesn't prioritize projects that are worth doing, that has never been subjected to uh, rigorous experimentation to prove it's better than alternatives, but merely um, rewards things that uh, happen to score well uh, based on reviewers in an environment that heavily incentivizes group think uh, and sensationalistic claims and and blowhard promises. Uh, you know, there's so many things that you can go on and on and on. You could have a whole episode on all the things that are frustrations. And, um, and, and, and they're almost not worth it even when you are seriously interested in the work itself. I mean, that's something that I struggle with personally. Even when you are super interested in, in, in just a handful of issues that you really want to get people to think a little bit differently about, and everyone who listens to this podcast knows what those issues are for me, uh, even then I struggle to imagine why this is worth it on a daily basis. But I cannot imagine uh, being in this space if I weren't that interested in those handful of, of niche issues uh, that honestly can't be dealt with really uh, outside of the academy uh, because they're very technical academic points uh, that uh, very few people are quite interested in. Um, so, But if I didn't have that, God, I would never put up with half these things. I mean, I just couldn't imagine putting up with this in a soft money environment. I mean, it's just ludicrous. I would, um, oh boy, gosh, someday I'll tell you what I really think. Um, Okay, so then I go on in my, in my tweetorial. Uh, what are clues that you actually, you know, are interested in your work? You wake up thinking about the work. You know, you wake up and you're thinking about, huh, what was that problem we're working on? Or, um, you know, the other day for me, it was just such an odd one. Um, I woke up thinking about an article I reviewed for a journal, and I had drafted, like, um, my review to the editor. And, um, and, and I'll give you just the gist of it. You know, it won't, it won't be breaching any confidences, um, which is, you know, it was, it was an article – very provocative, had a really clever, you know, opening, like, we're going to look at this, you know, it's kind of, you could just imagine how it's like a punchline kind of, kind of piece, um, you know, and they looked at it, and it was kind of clever, and I was like, immediately, I was like, yeah, that's great, that's great, I can just imagine, this is a great punchline, and then I slept on it, I woke up in the morning, and I was like, you know what, I think they miss, they miss it entirely, and like, with the exact same data, and the exact same thing, you know, they should just present the figure in this other way, and uh, it won't be a punchline kind of thing, but it'll be kind of making a different punchline that's even a little bit broader and may even be even like more, more to the point that they're trying to make. And, and so my review, I thought, you know, I said, take it or leave it, you know, that's the, uh, but, you know, it's like, you know, you should think about reframing this whole thing in this other light. Um, 
So anyway, I guess what I want to say is that that only occurred because obviously this paper is on like the handful of things that I care about and I, you know, I was just mulling it over and it was kind of lingering in my mind. Um, uh, you call friends and colleagues to talk about the issues. Back to the thing. Uh, I think that's super telling, you know, that um, uh, I, I can, I mean, there's a lot of people I talk to about like what they work on and I ask them to like explain it to me and why they matters. And um and, uh, you know, they kind of shrug and, they, they, you know, they often don't want to talk about it. Um, and that's not good. I mean, if you really just don't care, uh, again, I just think it, the calculus is not work, worth it. And then I said, if 5% of the career advice discussions on Twitter or podcast shifted to the scholarship over the trappings of academic medicine, I would stop having to roll my eyes and sigh. Uh, and my fingers would stop having to be tempted to comment. Um, as I always say, if you want to know if someone's a good thinker in academic medicine, find articles that they must have written and read them. Uh, articles where there's like one name listed and it's not linked to commercial products, so there's less of a chance for ghost authorship. Uh, oh, I still believe that, obviously. That's something I've said on this podcast before. You really want to get a sense of what someone's thinking. You have to read things that they themselves probably wrote. Um, uh, a person's thinking is their writing. Many big names write single author papers that are rambling and tangential. At other times after reading three papers from a junior person, I'm 100% sure they're going to be a star and I follow all their articles. Oh, that's so true. Uh, I've, picked, I've picked many winners over the years. Uh, when you find someone's work you admire, you have to read all of their articles. I, I say all, but you know we're talking about 100 plus articles. Um, and oh, I, I do think that's true. I'm, I'm forgetting my own tweetorial, but I, I think that's super true. Yeah, you start to read somebody's like body of work, and uh, and then I say this: when they surprise me in Article 99, I'm very impressed. Yeah, that is uh, it's so telling. You know, sometimes you read 100 people's articles, and you and after 10, I can just tell you what they're going to say. You know, something like um, uh, colon cancer is a bad disease, and we need to treat it early. And early treatment's always going to be better than later treatment. Uh, and then you know, somebody will bring up, but oh, wasn't there a randomized trial of treating asymptomatic colon cancer, and and didn't it fail to show a survival or quality of life benefit over treating when it became symptomatic? And they say, oh, forget about that, forget about that. Uh, treating early is always better than treating later. Uh, that's how you're going to cure cancer by treating the first clone, even though it's hard to see, and there's going to be no false positives and overdiagnosis. You don't have to worry about that. You know, you read somebody who has that kind of philosophy, which is omnipresent in this world, because it's one of those philosophies that's heavily rewarded in the funding cycle, et cetera, et cetera, and by, you know, all the people who want to uh, claim discovery and success. Uh, you read that and you see that, you know, after 10 papers, you see this is their view. You know what they're going to say in paper 50, 60, 70, and, and very rarely am I surprised. It's the people who, um, you know, who surprise me in Article 99 who say something that I didn't expect that this person would hold that view. That's truly impressive. The last thing I say, forget about careerism. There are a lot better ways to make money than in academics. Focus on whether you're doing something you want that really matters, that you are best able to do and cannot be replaced by anyone. Enough careerism. And so, you know, I, I really stand by this because um, I just think that uh, it is so not worth it unless you really, really, really care about the issue. And even when you really, really, really care about the issue – and it's an issue that cannot be addressed outside of the academy, so that's also part of it, um, it's still a constant daily struggle to put up with half of the uh, insanities that exist in the academic structure uh, and funding and a dependence on soft money. It's still just a constant struggle to, to think that that's worth it. And so if you don't feel that strongly about that issue, then God, it's got to be a total wash and you just got to walk away. I mean, I just 100% would think that it would be not worth doing. Um, and that's just my two cents, of course. Uh, and so, of course, um, you know, I noticed a really interesting 
thread uh, recently online where somebody was asking, you know, like, what do you aspire for in your academic career? And they had listed like eight things. And one was like cure a disease, but the other was like become editor in chief of a journal and win a Nobel Prize and give a keynote lecture. And um, and so I just thought it was interesting that like, you know, we, we subconsciously think that like, what do you hope to do in your career? What's your sort of uh, bucket list items and like out of seven things, you know, six out of the seven things were careerism things and only one out of seven was in the scholarship camp. Um, and then when you look through all the replies, it's it, it's it's much of the same. There's a lot of things that are, um, you know, careerism. I hope to give this lecture and give this thing. Um, so I don't know what to say. I think uh, careerism bad. Uh, it's not bad like uh, there's anything bad about wanting those things. It's just bad as if you don't have sort of a deep interest in the issue that you're studying, uh, then I just can't imagine you're going to you're gonna survive. I mean, you're going to want to survive. I mean, I just can't imagine that it w- it's worth it. I mean, it's just an honest assessment. I mean, it's, I just cannot imagine it is worth it. I think it would be 100% worth it to walk away um, and to work for a think tank, um, even sort of the research arm of, it, of a corporation, uh, even um, to take the research skills you have and apply them for finance or investments. I mean, I just can think of a million other things uh, that would be less frustrating, annoying, uh, less perverse uh, than having to remain in the academy. Um, And the only thing that would offset that is if you you really have some topic that you want people to, I don't know, think hopefully an ounce better about, um, and you want to do research that pushes that thinking, uh, that's the only thing I I think makes it worth it. And and even then, as I freely admit, I think it's just a daily struggle. On that positive note, we're going to shift to abstracts. Abstracts. Uh, recently, uh, a dear, dear friend and colleague and um, somebody whom I worked with before, uh, but I'm not going to use the word mentee because I you know, hate that word, because uh, uh, I didn't mentor this person. I mean, this person already came fully formed, and uh, I worked with this person on a few papers. Um, this person was telling me that it is abstract season, that there are a couple conferences coming up, and this person is working uh, on abstracts. And they're part of a, a new team now um, that takes abstracts quite seriously, and that there's a lot of passing back and forth of abstracts, getting the wording just right to get it down to 400 words. And the clock is ticking because the submission deadline is due, and so they want to get all these abstracts in. And this person admits that it's super, super stressful, which I can imagine that it's super stressful. And this person asked that how I deal with it. And that's when I said, oh... How do I deal with it? I don't. <laughs> and that was, that was the, that's what I wanted to talk about. I don't deal with it. How do I not deal with it? I, I, I don't submit any abstracts. I advise anyone who works with me to let's just ignore that it even exists. Uh, forget the abstract. Forget the poster. Uh, we're just going to proceed. We're just going to do the thing we wanted to do, see how it looks, and write it up and try to figure out like where to send the paper to. And we're just like going to be out of the entire abstract rat race. Uh, we have signed off on that entire project. And uh, it's super liberating because the moment you uh, take the ball out of the abstract court, there is no deadline. When do you have to submit the paper? Whenever it's done, to our satisfaction. Is that on February 14th? No, it can be any time we ever want it to be. Uh, the best times are the day before holiday break, right? No, no, I'm just kidding, journal editors. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Don't take it easy, journal editors. Um, but, you know, so it gives you this infinite flexibility, too. Um, 
uh, you can look at the totality of it unless all of the 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 evidence uh, you know fits together. Um, you know, you can abort the whole thing. You know, you don't have to go forward with the paper. You can just skip it. Um, and, you know, many papers have been aborted because um, uh, that uh, it wasn't even doable. That's, I mean, that's often a big problem. We, we tried to do it, and then we hit all these roadblocks. We couldn't do it. Uh, people didn't cooperate. We couldn't get some data. Um, well, that I think I think I think that's one roadblock, but there are many roadblocks on that on the path uh, to try to get this thing done. Um, I also think that it 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 really allows you the opportunity to tell the full story, uh, to show all the data, and let people draw their own conclusions. And you know, I don't know. Let's be honest. The kind of work I do is uh, you know a huge chunk, fifty percent, is just descriptive observational work. I've kind of, you know I've had to just admit the reality. Uh, there's no fancy stats. There's no uh, experimental causation here. This is just strict descriptive work. It's just descriptive work where I think people's eyes have been averted or they just don't see the truth. So we just want to describe it. Um, and and that kind of work is you know no matter what you find, it's just really just ripe to report. Um, uh, honestly and transparently, how you did it and what you found, and then and then to hope that you know somebody along the way uh, will you know try to do something similar or do it again, um, and 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 that kind of work I think is just really well suited for uh, you know going after the paper. Um, I also think the nice thing about it is, I you know I've said before on this, I hate abstracts. I hate medicine by press release. I hate abstracts, particularly when we talk about abstracts for like treatment decisions. Um, it's just ludicrous to think that a doctor uh, in this modern environment of cancer medicine can be making treatment decisions based on 200, 400 words. Um, and, you know, I've gotten some pushback online from people who, who disagree. They say doctors don't change practice based on abstracts. Um, and I would go even further. Uh, not only do they change practice based on abstracts, they change practice based on uh, their colleague talking about an abstract that the colleague heard about. I mean, it's not even talking firsthand knowledge of the abstract. Um, so I think it's really often flimsy where you where you see people start to change practice or to say that, you know, this is right around the corner. We're about to be using, um, you know, uh, this new drug in this setting. Uh, and that's very disconcerting uh, because as we know from this podcast, it's often the case that's only a deep look in the supplementary appendix before you find find out anything um, useful about the study or find out how it really worked. So I guess what I want to say is that, I mean, I understand why um, this this friend and colleague is, is caught in the abstract rat race um, because this person is pursuing sort of the non-policy kind of tract. And there is a certain sort of dialogue that takes place uh, at these meetings. But, you know, my advice, of course, insofar as is absolutely possible, is to, uh, if you don't absolutely need to be presenting abstracts, just get out of the abstract game. Let's just sign off on it. Let, let people go present their posters and, and give their five-minute oral, per ten-minute oral presentations. Let it go. You don't need to do that. It's almost always low-quality more questions than answers, not very helpful. Um, forget the careerism of, you know, as I said in part one, forget the careerism, skip it all, go to a conference a year and meet with your old colleagues and have some good discussions, but skip, skip the abstracts. And and don't, don't, don't take the overhead bin space up with the poster roll. Just leave it at home. Don't iron out the the new type of poster with the, that you can fold up and iron. It's just, it's, it's, it's too much. Just skip it all. Um, it's not it's not a useful way to present scholarship and i just really 
just want to sign off the whole project. And there are a lot of other people who do the kind of work that I do um, who can sign off. You know, you don't need to do it. Uh, I understand that people who work on certain types of trials, it's often the sponsoring company that has a strong push to want to present abstracts. And they play a big role in sort of grooming how the abstract is written. And, you know, it's going to be hard in the short term to kind of get away from those things. But, of course, in the long run, um, I think there are some ways. And I think we have to move away from that sort of idea that the company is going to be grooming how they're in how their results of their clinical trial are put forth in the world. So abstracts, just two cents, avoid them, just go for the paper, skip them entirely, they're pointless. And um, they're fragments of information They probably do more of a disservice to science than a service. Just a few thoughts. And on that positive note, we're going to turn to the next topic, Twitter. A perspective on the K index by Bob Califf. This appeared in Jack, Jack Case Reports, an open access journal. This is written by former commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Bob Califf, who, on many topics, I like a lot and I agree with a lot, particularly his insistence on randomization. That's, that's good. And recently I did learn that he very cleverly, along with colleagues, changed the wording in the, in the 21st Century Cures Bill in a, in, a, in a very clever way that was buried in, a, in another administrative um, legislative document that I would never have seen if he hadn't pointed it out. But he really redefined the definition of real-world evidence in this addendum from evidence outside of randomized controlled trials to evidence outside of traditional trials, thus keeping the option of a pragmatic randomized control trial, which is a very clever bit of wordplay that actually, uh, well, it makes no practical difference in the short term because the FDA, of course, has capitulated on all these issues, but perhaps someday in a future administration can be used to reinsert sanity into the FDA. So I really like that. But Dr. Califf is back, and in a proud tradition of cardiologists um, trolling uh, the broader academic community has a perspective on the K-index. Um, and this is really reminiscent of another paper I read a few years ago, which is Milt Packer, Do You Practice Twitter-Based Medicine? Where Milt Packer, in a blog post, lamented the rise of tweets. <laughs> in a blog post, okay. So in the, uh, the pinnacle of hypocrisy, he wondered why in a blog we are taking tweets so seriously. Because they're not of the rigor that blogs are. See, a blog, anyone can post on any website, but a tweet, anyone can say on one website. So that's the key difference. I think it's just a ludicrous thing. But of course, he complained about Twitter, and uh, and then Dr. Califf, of course, joins the proud tradition of senior academics in cardiology uh, lamenting the rise of Twitter. And I just want to read read you one paragraph. So of course he's talking about an index called the Kardashian index, which, you know, I don't know if people know it, but I think it's the number of followers you have on Twitter divided by your cumulative citations. And, uh, I think mine is like off the charts. It's like 56 or something crazy high. Uh, and then the idea is the higher you are on the Kardashian index, the less serious you are of a scientist and the more, uh, serious you are of a social media user, uh, and uh, you are potentially as frivolous as Kim Kardashian, hence the, the Kardashian name being attached to it. So that's, I think, the, the sort of the pejorative way it's been put forth. And of course, as I point out, you know, if you want to make, um, you know, a new metric that um, just makes everyone who's a, a senior academic uh, feel better about themselves, you could just 
do it real simply. The, the number of times you've tweeted divided by the number of years you've been a full professor multiplied by lifetime achievement awards plus one, of course, to avoid the zero, multiplied by accumulative citations, multiplied by total earnings in your career in medicine. Uh, that's a simple ratio that will reward uh, people who've had longer careers. It's just as simple as that. And you can call it the uh, why is the world changing index. Then um, you can popularize that and you can feel good that you're going to score really low on the why is the world changing index and all the frivolous people are going to score really high. Um, so Dr. Califf writes, given the rapid growth of Twitter, it's not surprising that analysis of data related to its use would develop. Uh, Dr. Khan et al. analyzed the relationship between impact factor and Twitter followers, a ratio that has been known as the Kardashian index. The concept of Kardashian index is to identify the relationship based on social media platform and the impact factor, assuming that impact factor is directly related to scientific contribution. In an ideal world, scientists with the most important contributions of original knowledge would have the largest Twitter following. However, pundits with few publications with impact and a large Twitter following either may be expert commentators and analysts or may re represent crackpots with little real knowledge of topics for which they're commenting. And then he goes on a long discussion of how people who criticize trials are the men in the arena watching from the sidelines. People who run clinical trials are, are the person who's uh, in the ring, uh, fighting, uh, engaging in the, in the act. I don't know what to say. There's so many things that I thought were just trolling us all. Um, one, I just think it's, it's super funny um, that in an ideal world, scientists uh, with the most cumulative citations uh, would have the largest Twitter following. Okay, that's why would that be? Why should that be the case? Uh, okay, sure. Um, that would penalize, of course, uh, even a junior person who's published ten nature papers in the last year, because simply by virtue of not having lived long enough, uh, this person has not yet reaped uh, the inevitable citations that will pour down on their head, um, and so that they're going to, even if they had a handful of followers, have more followers than, of course, citations, and thus be a Kardashian, even though this person is putting out nature papers at a clip that no one has ever seen in the history of the world. So one can imagine that this is just such a, 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 a ludicrous index. The next question, of course, is um, why, of course, should um, people follow people who have a lot of citations? Uh, do they have more thoughtful, interesting things to say? Um, I think that kind of ignores the fact that, you know, where are citations really accrued? Uh, a lot of massive citations come from the fact that people are uh, an author of a guidance document, uh, such as the ACC or AHA guidance documents, the NCCN guidance documents, um, documents that are heavily cited uh, that can massively inflate citation count. Um, and the people who participate in that process may have participated only tangentially or, or modestly and, and may have made little substantive uh, comments in, in the document itself. It may not reflect much of their own input and yet such a person would have a massive uh, citation impact. Uh, again, even if one were to look at just uh, original articles with huge citation counts, uh, many of those are, are, are industry-sponsored clinical trials uh, for which authorship is decided uh, for, uh, let's be honest, largely political reasons um, in terms of, of branding and marketing and how the strategy of, of deploying and selling products will be. And so even such a thing would not even put uh, people who are perhaps the most shrewd or thoughtful commenters um, in positions of large following um, 
I guess the next thing I want to talk about is this idea that I hear over and over again, which is that um, it's it's easy to be a critic. It's uh, it's difficult um, to be to be the trialist. Um, I think that uh, that's got to be 100 percent factually not true. I mean, I think that it's got to be easier to be the trialist than to be the critic of clinical trials. Uh, one, one could look at funding opportunities. There's much more funding opportunities for people doing clinical trials. Two, one could look at um, uh, just past performance. How many people have actually developed careers uh, as being a thoughtful critic. Um, three, uh, uh, professional retaliation and retribution, uh, especially prevalent uh, if someone were to criticize a, a hot topic where people are um, doing quite well, such as uh, the push to sequence every cancer patient, even though that we have no credible evidence that shows anyone's better off as a result of that. Uh, so uh, I think uh, that by all those metrics, that would just be patently false. Um, and moreover, there are many people who participate in clinical trials who um, you know may not even know what happened in their clinical trial. A few years ago, we were doing a project where I had to email the corresponding authors of many, 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 many clinical trials and ask them for uh, AEs. They didn't report other questions about the trial that weren't explicitly reported. And many of them just directed me to the sponsor. They said they didn't have access to the data. They didn't analyze the data. They don't know the answer to those questions. Um, So it's hard to believe that somebody who doesn't know the answer to those questions is, uh, as Dr. Califf Wright quotes, the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, end quote. Um... So, I mean, the person, the man in the arena who awaited the medical writer to produce the draft of the document, superficially glanced at it, agreed that their name could go first or last, and then sunk back into the chair exhausted from the effort. Uh, that's the man or woman who sits on the sideline poring over the supplementary appendix and, and reading the tables and looking at the protocol to find the several instances in which a thumb was placed on the scale. That is merely the critic who's idly sitting by while the trialist is working so hard, uh, demanding that the medical writer meet the tight timetable. I mean, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, this is not an analogy that fits. Uh, it uh, is crazy to think that uh, people who um, don't participate in uh, the clinical trials are not able to criticize it. Um, people who who are the movie critics for the New York Times, uh, they don't make blockbusters, who are the food critics for the Times, they're not restaurateurs. Uh, people who are music critics don't always uh, play all the instruments. Uh, people who best appraise medical research aren't always the ones who are the PI on this study. Um, uh, <laughs> in every walk of life, no one thinks that uh, you have to have done something to to comment. Uh, Nate Silver tries to predict who wins elections. He himself has never won an election. Oh boy, he's just a guy on the sidelines who wants to predict it. What does he know? He's only studied how uh, 200 elections in the past. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, this is the silliest argument. Why are they making this argument? My goodness, it's got to be just to bait us into clicking on this argument. Obviously... Obviously, this is wrong in every dimension. The Kardashian index was simply made uh, so that people could feel good about themselves, um, particularly people who were doing quite well in an old power structure and not doing so well in a new power structure. Um, They can make up whatever other index that they want. 
uh, that will make you feel good about yourself. You can complain about Twitter, uh, just like you can smash the radio on your nightstand, uh, because radios are bad. In the old days, we used to read silently, and then, of course, the radio was there intruding in our living rooms. Uh, then, of course, the television came. That was also bad. Uh, then, of course, social media came. That's bad, too. In the future, there'll be some new technology. That will also be bad. Um, and uh, it's really the older way that we used to do things by candlelight. Uh, that's the good way. Um, people who criticize things without doing them, they're just like the food critic for the New York Times. What does he know? He's only eaten at all of the good restaurants and only writes very eloquently about how food should be presented and taste. Um, he's never run a restaurant and never made every single dish that he's commenting on. Uh, so what does he know? What does the music critic know for the New York Times without having written a Grammy women, Grammy winning album before? Um, uh, they don't know what the trialist knows who has uh, asked the statistician to generate the results, uh, which the company, of course, filtered uh, to make sure only the appropriate results were being presented to the audience and any negative result that could not actively be suppressed has been moved to the supplement. Then the trialist, of course, has had to wait patiently for the medical writer to draft the manuscript, may even have to skim the document before forwarding it to all of the colleagues for for comments and, and comments on the manuscript. Uh, it can be hard work, I can imagine. And unless you have that experience, how could you possibly read a clinical trial and know if it is good or bad? Well, I don't know what to say. It's sad that um, these are the kinds of things that get published. I don't know what to say. It's just a total, total farce. I almost feel bad talking about it on this podcast because it, it draws attention to, to this. But it is part of a growing tradition of uh, cardiologists um, complaining about Twitter. Um, but I do think it's actually one step slightly better, less ironic than Milt Packer's, uh, because this was published in an index journal, and that was published on a blog. And I think when a blog starts being critical of a tweet, we really have reached a total low. Uh, so I guess I give him credit for that. It's, it's published in a peer-reviewed journal. Although I've got to be sure that the article wasn't peer-reviewed, because even an, an inept peer reviewer would point out that this is not a very good commentary that is not really well thought out. So on that positive note, we'll turn to the next segment. I'm back in plenary session HQ, and this is what the new HQ is for. We've got three mics now. We actually got four mics, but we don't got four people. We've got three mics now. So we're going to do a new dialogue in our little session on classical hematology chats classical hematology chats chcs i hope you enjoy this new section of plenary session i'm joined in the studio by dr sven olsen say hello sven hello everyone people know sven olsen he he needs no introduction he's the chief fellow well one of two with the denominator of three uh at the ohsu four <laughs> denominator four? Oh, right okay yeah. so 50 percent okay 50 percent out all right sven olsen chief fellow you know him well. He runs the popular seg segment of uh, Hematology Oncology Questions with Sven Olsen, and uh, he's, a, he's a listener favorite. I'm also joined in the studio by assistant professor, Dr. Joe Schatzel. Joe Schatzel, say hello. How do you do? It's good to have you, Joe. Joe's been a guest on this podcast before. Uh, I think he gave mentorship advice, and I think you came on before that for something else, which uh, escapes me at this time. There's been so many episodes. That is true. And I would also point out that when I was chief fellow, I, there was only one chief fellow. That's true, but the denominator yeah. then for sure was three. That was three. Wow. <laughs> and Shade, one, shades I, being thrown in the first 60 seconds. <laughs> and one was Braun, who really would never have been uh, uh, on the denominator. So it was really just you and, and Adam Katai. So no, it was, it was you, Robin Sherber, oh, and Nick Gay. Oh, boy. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm confusing the two classes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Time flies. I know. I'm getting old. Yeah. Yeah, it was just yesterday that um, that I was on service. Uh, it was my first month here at OHSU, and, mm-hmm. and it was your first month here as a fellow. That was for good times, yeah. Those were good times, yeah. yeah. Well, it's good to have you both in the studio. All right, gentlemen. So we're here to talk about a topic that is near and dear to all our hearts, mm-hmm. which is sickle cell disease. Um, you know, when we were, Joe and I at least, I don't know mm-hmm. about Sven. Sven is, uh, is a child of the modern age. He's had an abundance of riches. Wow. Um, but when Joe and I were in training, there, there weren't a heck of a lot of options uh, for patients with sickle cell disease. That's of course, correct. We yeah. prescribe hydroxyurea. Yes, we do. And, um, and we would take care of people in pain crisis or had acute chest. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we didn't have many disease-modifying therapies. Now, of course, there's several approved drugs. That's Cri- true. Crizanlizumab. Yep. Voxelator. Correct. Yes. And uh, a precious amino acid. <laughs> glutamine. L. 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 Glutamine. You shut your mouth, glutamine. Yeah, it has to be L. Yeah. Can you just take any old glutamine, a racemic mixture, like an animal, or do you need the pure L-glutamine? You need L-glutamine. You know, no one trialed that, yes. but they, like GNC glutamine. Yeah, and we're going to come to that. Um, you know, uh, it reminds me a little bit of, well, we'll come to that. Um, so so let's start. Let's start here. So we have at least three new options. Am I forgetting any? Are there any other new options for sickle cell disease? And that's the approvals that have happened now. They're all in the last, like, two years. I forget exactly yeah. when glutamine was approved, but this all happened in the last two years. So it's all condensed into like a very, very small period. And it's sort of like an abundance of riches now. Mm-hmm. It's abundance of something. Abundance of something. I shouldn't say riches right away. But, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. It's a, there's more options. Let's say that. Right. We can all agree there are more things you can give. And I think, True. I mean, just to cut to the chase, I think the, uh, the, the bottom line should be that this is great that there's actually being movement done to forward care of sickle cell because it's sort of been neglected for a while. I agree with that. I mean, I think there's nothing we want more than effective therapies for sickle cell disease. Right. You can get those by doing better basic science work, better research, and better clinical trials, or you can also get them by lowering the regulatory standards for drug approval and just letting the same lower level evidence lead to more drugs. So those are the two ways to get there, to get more drugs. Only one is good. Dr. Schatzel tilts his head in a, in a quizzical manner. Well, you know, I'm just thinking because uh, I spent the morning seeing patients with hemophilia, mm-hmm. another genetic disorder people are born with. Correct. And, um, uh, the therapies for hemophilia are lifelong and very expensive. Very and expensive. And it really permeates into their care. Mm-hmm. They are sort of, um, I think the money around their treatments funds a lot of things. And um, I think it, it lended to them not, not being neglected by healthcare and I think sickle cell patients because there was no income in their therapies they just seem like completely treated completely differently by the healthcare system. Yeah, I think that's a profound observation. I mean, I think let's just take three diseases that we all have seen in our careers as internists and as hematology oncologists. So one, we see patients with hemophilia and there we have product, we have factors that cost what? 300, 400, 500 grand a year? They can, yeah. Easily. Yeah. Um, and, and in that setting of hemophilia, what do they have? They have camps. Uh, for kids who have hemophilia. They have retreats. We have have been at those camps, and they're a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun. Yeah, I learned that there are sickle cell camps, too, though. Uh I understand, too. I understand (laughs) that there are, but my understanding is that they're not as um, uh, lavish as the camps you've been to. I don't know, yeah. I've only been to one here, but it was fun. And I also heard that there are scholarships for people who suffer from hemophilia um, uh, that are funded by the companies that make the factors and the products. Uh, Is that the case? I'm not sure about that. I will say that we have... um, Internally, we have a hemophilia center that is some, somewhat self-funded by their, um, their 
pharmacy. They're largesse, yeah. And uh, that's the other thing. A lot of academic yeah. centers are funded, but I actually know they have they, the they have the hemophilia um, uh, camps. They have a 340B here. Oh, they fund it. Yeah. oh, the 340B. That's a whole nother. We could do a whole topic on yeah. that. <laughs> but of course, that allows uh, the university to uh, uh, reap the riches of these drugs. Um, mm. uh, okay, so hemophilia is one where there's a lot of revenue in there. Mm. Um, the patients may meet with drug reps and they may get that kind of care. The other one I think about is, is cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis really gets, uh, uh, I would say, almost a red carpet of sort of the healthcare service. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, they were, um, at least at our institution, I've been here now as a resident and as a fellow. And I remember as a resident, there was a very, very um, robust system in place, sort of like the people with hemophilia, that um, they're they're very closely, closely followed. And anytime they were admitted to the hospital, there's a whole team of people that would be aware of it and that would help organize logistics yeah. of their care. And it was it made it very easy. And you could tell that a lot of thought and a lot of planning went into the care of those people. And I think um, we're not alone in that our, you know, our sickle cell population being really low relative to a lot of places in the country. But mm. I think um, we, it's just becoming uh, more of a prominent thing now that places are becoming sort of sickle cell centers of excellence yeah. where they're really pioneering and promoting better care for these people. That's good to hear. Um, but I do think it still lags behind the kind of care that gets yeah. you. Know, yeah? I, I don't feel the same resources available. Mm-hmm, like I have, mm-hmm. I have a whole center devoted to the treatment of patients with hemophilia, mm-hmm. and I think they get amazing care. Well, um, that, that might change if the but, price of L-glutamine goes to $500,000 a year. <laughs> There'll yeah. be some extra money there. Well, uh, I came from a, um, a sickle cell workshop uh, through ASH uh, two months, three months ago or so. And, you know, I was surprised even our neighbors up in Seattle, they have a pretty robust system in place already where they have, they kind of model it after hemophilia and they have a multidisciplinary whole team with, you know, pharmacists and social workers. And I think you really need that. Good. I, I think that um, patients with sickle cell disease disease deserve the very best care, the same care as, I mean, we, we shouldn't have a healthcare system with based on the kind of genetic yeah. disease you have, you get differential care. That's just crazy to me. It would be as ludicrous as having, you know, say for instance, at a cancer center, if I don't know, one disease type, like, I don't know, hypothetically yeah. a prostate cancer had really good care, but like lung cancer didn't, that would be a ludicrous thing if that were true at a, at a place. No, I completely agree. I feel like patients with sickle cell deserve better care that than they often get. And mm-hmm. I wish we had more resources to offer them. That's good. All right, so now let's turn to these drug approvals. Yes. All right, so so you and I, Sven Olsen, we talked about Voxelator. We did. Good approval or great approval? Mm, neither, <laughs> neither. <laughs> I mean, we've discussed this uh, drug yeah. since then um, at our own kind of internal uh, non-malignant hematology conferences mm-hmm. and little case series. And, you know, I've heard from some of our pediatric colleagues in hematology that they're considering using it, um, particularly for the patients who are severely anemic and have, you know, signs of hemolysis, which is kind of what we talked about. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it hasn't seen, as far as when I've gone around different places now <coughs> on the interview trail and asked about it, I have not heard that much excitement about it. And, and the, maybe it's just too soon, but... And if I recall our discussion before, like one of the things we faulted was the primary endpoint of this study um, had to do uh, with the rate at which a transfusion was necessary, the rate of the hemoglobin, basically the hemoglobin. It was a hemoglobin-based right. endpoint. Right. Yeah. But I don't think it's a very clinically relevant endpoint. Yeah, it's a small difference in hemoglobin. Uh, of course... Well, I don't think we know yet. I mean, there could be a... I mean, if you have chronic hemolysis, that may be a surrogate for 
ultimately development of pulmonary hypertension. That's what kills people ultimately mm -hmm, with this mm -hmm. disease a lot of times. So I think they just need longer study. Longer studies and more power. I mean, the yeah. sample size of that study is not going to get you there on these hard endpoints. Um, and that even though there's an association between lower hemoglobins and worse outcomes, we're not really sure if that change in hemoglobin, yeah. which is very modest, was one. one. Their one, goal yeah. was one gram yeah. per deciliter. One gram per deciliter. Yeah. I'm not going to get I, you there. Yeah. Yeah. I think as a surrogate endpoint, I haven't been convinced that... Um, it's beneficial, but I, I agree. calculated the yeah. I calculated the wholesale cost of that one. Okay, and it's about 150 grand a year. Mm -hmm. um, I see. So it's not insubstantial. Oh, it's that's a that's a real price. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and how many bags of blood do you save? Well. Well, you try not to you try avoid to save transfusion. Any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, actually, because our population of sickle cell patients is small compared to other centers, I think I see patients present to emergency rooms and get transfusions. Unfortunately, but yeah, right. The, Even in excess of what's obviously yeah, necessary, yeah. The teaching is you're trying to um, defer simple transfusion and allow anemia in patients who are asymptomatic. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. that teaching is, is serves a good purpose. Mm. Um, uh, okay, so voxelator we were all over the place on. Um, uh, we didn't have improvement in endpoints we would care about, like pulmonary hypertension, longevity, of course, we don't know. Um, I would say one thing came up yeah. since we talked about it, which is that they did a little subset analysis post-talk. Uh -huh. Yep. So, oh, my and favorite they, words. Yeah. <laughs> those were two trigger words for yeah, you. Yeah, those are my trigger warning. Kay. Yeah. Okay. Deep breath. Uh, <laughs> and they looked at people who actually had existing uh, ulcers from sickle cell, which honestly, I have not seen in my experience, I think. I've but, seen one. Like yeah, uh, like yeah. tibial ulcers, like skin ulcers? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh -huh. And so it actually had a substantial rate of, of reducing the ulcers. And mm -hmm. so that, again, that's a small subset analysis. But Yeah, it reminds me of a recent subset I saw that like in that randomized control trial of lenvantinib versus serafinib for HCC, the non-inferiority study, that if you had more than one therapy and if one of those therapies you had was taste, then lenvantinib had a huge survival advantage. Yes. I was like, that's a lot of ifs. <laughs> Like a yes, lot of if ifs. your patient shows up on a Tuesday, yeah, in they, March. yeah, <laughs> on a Tuesday in March, uh, wearing a green cardigan, yeah. then lend van. Now you're talking about Voxelator. Okay, well, yeah. good. You know, uh, well, I'm glad uh, they did that subset analysis. I just want to, um, uh, I just want to commend uh, whatever analyst at um, uh, at the company uh, that did um, uh, the, the 300, 400 analyses they needed to do to find that one. Now, <laughs> would it help if I said it was about 17 patients in that subset? <laughs> uh, okay, so so anyway. we were a little bit critical of. Now, uh, what about L-glutamine? L-glutamine actually has surprisingly decent. I mean, they actually looked at it at an endpoint we care about, which yep. is painful crises, vasoclusive crisis, painful crisis. Um, and uh, you know, on top of that, if you look at the rate of reduction in things like acute chest, it actually had a pretty substantial reduction in that as well. And I think that was something that. I had missed when I first read that paper, and then I looked at it yeah. again, and I thought, wow, it's actually not too bad. As an intervention to treat an endpoint I actually care about, which is like hospitalizations, crisis, it seems to work. I think um, what I struggle with is the cost of a pharmaceutical-grade amino acid mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when the... I have patients who really just want to buy the over-the-counter one. And, and and that puts you in a yeah. difficult role because yeah. uh, uh, obviously there is no randomized controlled trial of 230 people for uh, over-the-counter uh, glutamine. Correct. Uh, but, uh, and obviously you can't hang your hat on bioplausibility, but at the end of the day, L-glutamine is 50% uh, glutamine. Uh, and it seems as if if one were to consume glutamine, that it would mirror the effect of this product. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know of any other 
I don't know if there's another space in healthcare where this exists. This is something that was available over the counter, um, and they made a pharmaceutical grade variant and tested that, and that's what's approved, and that's thousands and thousands of dollars. Whereas the over the counter would be um, just anyone could pennies on the dollar. Yeah. yeah, I think the analogy is Vasepa or Amarin Pharmaceuticals fish oil. So you could take fish oil, but you don't get all the pure fish oil. Mm-hmm. They, they've sliced the fish in the, in the right way. Ah. Uh, they have a sushi chef in the back who serves it up just fine. Um, in a sterile lab. In a sterile lab, yeah. Uh, but, of course, that trial has a little bit of a problem in it. The control arm was uh, uh, enough mineral oil to give you uh, uh, diarrhea and your statin absorption <laughs> went uh, a little bit south. So, uh, Or could have went, I would say, putatively, po- possibly went a little bit south. <laughs> I had some, had some yeah. caveats there. Okay, so L-glutamine. Um, and I will say that yeah. I've seen several p- patients taking that, and I've actually witnessed them drinking it. So they mix mm. it, you know, they mix the powder, it's you mix it with a drink. And I've seen them mix it up and actually drink it in front of my eyes and they're always disgusted and actually actually a lot of them have then told me that it's actually pretty miserable and it's pretty upsetting to the gi system and hmm. so have I you mean, tried it Sven? i have not we should try some but maybe we should dr Schatzel, yeah. you're an avid um uh bodybuilder uh I, you I like drink to a lot of protein shakes. do you really yeah yeah, but have you uh, have you do you, uh, do you pick and choose among amino acids, or do you uh, do you take the smorgasbord of amino acids? Uh, I buy whatever is the cheapest on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> so something tells me that you're going to be in the racemic glutamine camp. If I you may, were... I may have a large amount of glutamine intake. I'm un- it's unclear. It's unclear. <laughs> yeah. But if you were to do it, you wouldn't L-glutamine it. You would take whatever the cheapest is on Amazon. So you would do sort of well, a mixture. You know, I struggle from counseling patients on this because yeah, I don't know what's in these. Um, glutamine concoctions they buy. I don't know anything about the quality of it. Yes. Uh, they're basically not FDA regulated. Of course. I know the I know that if they're paying a large copay for a pharmaceutical grade and they have this option that's really cheap. Uh it, I I see them struggle with that too. Yeah, I think yeah. that's that's got to be a tough one. Yeah. Let's talk for a moment about crizanlizumab. 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 So what's the what's the molecular target here, Sven Olson? P-selectin. Uh, my favorite selectin. Yes. It's yeah. a good one. Yeah. We have become very familiar with P-selectin, Dr. Schatzel and I, because mm-hmm. we've been doing some work, uh, some preclinical work with primates with uh, yeah. using, uh, looking at P-selectin. We're so. also scientists. I read about that in, yeah. the, yes. in, the, in, the, in the little email that they send us a few, every few weeks. Yeah. So I understand, uh, and, and how is P-selectin relevant to primates? Well, primates are an easier way to study Preclinical models. Mm-hmm. Their vasculature the is similar to, to humans. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for the listeners who are members of uh, PETA or other similar organizations, where can they find you guys? Turn <laughs> off the podcast. Maybe, yeah. where, can they, where, where can they find you two gentlemen? Uh, anyway. <laughs> okay. So, um, so the rationale behind this is yeah. basically that, you know, part of the pathophysiology of vaso-occlusion is the sickling and the, the mm-hmm. you know, aggregate of red blood cells. But part of that is also then um, adhesion molecules between not only red cells, but then leukocytes and platelets and endothelium. And mm-hmm. so actually, um, it's pretty amazing. One of our collaborators, our research mentors, Dr. Jonathan Lindner, who's a cardiologist here, and he's kind of the director of the primate core at our primate center, he's done quite a lot of work with um, defining how these adhesion molecules play into a lot of different uh, vascular and and hematologic diseases. And so he actually uh, had an R01 that specifically was looking at uh, these adhesion molecules and trying to uh, visualize their interaction between different cells. And P-selectin is, at least insofar as crizanlizumab, 
targets P-selectin, mm-hmm. where is P-selectin expressed? It's in a lot of things. It's in endothelium. It's in mm-hmm. platelets. Those are the two primary yeah. things. And so it's a marker of activation. It's not constitutive. It's only present yeah. when these cells are activated. Mm-hmm. When, when inflammation occurs and the, the cells that line the vasculature get inflamed, mm-hmm. they throw out these cell adhesion molecules and... Uh, Platelets also express them and leukocytes, and they all just glom together and start the process of uh, perpetuating the inflammation, plaque growth, thrombosis. So So the theory is if you can inhibit P-selectin aggregation of these this process, um, you will uh, abrogate uh, vasoclusive crisis because this is a critical step in vasoclusive crisis. That was the theory, and if if you believe the trial is truth, it appears to have panned out. Uh, And this is a very interesting trial to me. It's a a randomized phase two trial. Mm -hmm. With just all the power that comes with, what, 60 people per arm? Yes. <laughs> that kind of massive right power, a great power. And it's a three-arm study, of course. So there's the high-dose crizenlizumab, there's a the low-dose crizenlizumab, and then there's the control arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a hierarchical spending function on the alpha so that you get your first crack is, is high-dose better than placebo. And only if that is sated do you get to ask, is low-dose better than uh, placebo? And uh, they get a p-value that is uh, less than 0.05. They do. That is correct. It's 0.01. And that's less than 0.05. And that's what it takes to be a winner. Um, and, and the reduction in vaso-occlusive crisis is what? 2.4 to 1.6-ish something? If you look at the intention to treat, yeah. yes. Uh, and that's in the overall population. And then you can, of course, parse out different subpopulations of people who are on hydrea or not hydrea. And mm-hmm. How many vaso-occlusive crises they had prior to enrollment. Sure. So. Sure, but um, overall it was positive. About a forty yeah. percent reduction from two point four to uh, one point. What was it? Well, it was one point six yeah, in the high dose, and then two point nine. Two point nine in the yeah. in the control arm. Yep. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that caught my eye was that crizanlizumab came with a few side effects of itself. It uh, did. Those included arthralgia and back pain. Now, I am not an expert, but I would say <laughs> that arthralgia and back pain sound a little bit like some of the complaints that get raised with vasoclusive crisis, is it not? Well, it's funny you say that because yeah. glutamine had the same problem. If you look at the glutamine trial, a lot of the uh, side effects were abdominal pain, mm-hmm. uh, extremity pain, mm-hmm. which was right. specifically extremity pain, which also was a little confusing to me. So, yeah, um, you yeah. know, it, de- it all depends on how you define a vasoclusive crisis. And I guess that's the problem, too, is you can't really prove that. It's hard to flush out because... There is a numerically smaller but still notable rate of those things in the placebo. Yeah. Um, yes, I see what you're saying, yeah. right? Like um, uh, the placebo arm, it's not like they have no arthralgia. It's not like they have yeah. no back pain. They have a numerically smaller yeah. um, rate of those things. I mean, that is the backdrop of the disease. Uh, but the treatment arm did have uh, an yeah. excess of it, and the, and the drug label I see from the US FDA actually labels it both with those adverse mm-hmm. events. Um, the reason I think it's so interesting is that, um, yeah, like as doctors, it, to us, uh, we know vasoclusive crisis is a problem and we want to reduce it. Um, but uh, one worries in a trial that if you are coding some symptoms of like pain as a vasoclusive crisis, but other symptoms you're, you're discounting and you're saying, well, that's an AE, that's not a vasoclusive crisis, um, then maybe you're not looking at the totality of what the drug is doing. Like uh, maybe a cleaner yeah. way to do it is like you, you randomize people and you look at like a sort of a cumulative one-year health-related quality of life questionnaire. I think it's hard because uh, the pain is like a, is a challenging measure to compare across mm-hmm. hundreds of people. The one endpoint that stood out to me was the hospitalization days. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the high dose group, um, the uh, average 
days in the hospital per year was four, and then placebo was 6.8. Mm-hmm. That's a measurable endpoint of pain was severe enough that people presented to healthcare. Right, and then yeah. the, and um, and uh, uh, and it was about two extra days they shaved off. Yeah, and that's probably because they that that shavings occurs. Um, I wonder. I wonder. I mean, one question would be like, is that because the duration of hospitalizations are shorter, or just that there were fewer hospitalizations? Right. Yeah. So that's an important point. So, uh, I mean, to me, the 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 other thing was the people who had lots and lots of crises before they were enrolled seemed to have like the most profound benefit to me. So, like they they had they stratified them by two to four crises a year, or five to ten. And the five to ten had two if they were treated with high dose. Yeah. And then the placebo was five, and that was a sixty three percent reduction. That was more substantial than. Now any let me other. see that a second. Yeah, and the same goes for the people who were and weren't on hydrea. I think you can you can easily see that the people who are already on hydrea and they got this had a lot less of a benefit um, mm-hmm. than the people who weren't. But like at that point, who's not going to be on hydrea? Of course, right. And I think that that's yeah. a yeah. I mean, who's not going to be on hydrea? It's almost sort of a a, a bad a marker of bad care if you're not on hydrea. Yeah, at that I'd be point. surprised. If, I mean, it, the only time would be if someone really couldn't tolerate hydrea for whatever reason, or they were yeah. you know or non-compliance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I guess we should also mention that it's often easy to know non-compliance on hydrea in a clinical setting because there's one. Uh, laboratory value that's a telltale sign. That's true. The MCV should be abnormally high. It should be. I guess I find this interesting. You're right that there appears to be sort of a, a, um, you know, maybe the relative benefit of the drug is preserved, but the absolute benefit is greater as you go up in crises. But I'm always find it interesting when the drug company has decided to bin a variable like this. So two to four is in one bin, five to 10 is in another bin. Yeah. Uh, what if you binned it two to six and six to te- and six or more? Sometimes the way you bin the data, the truth emerges. But it's so I, I think when you have uh, the luxury of, uh, I'm about to say medical writer, but I'm going to go to the last page to prove that. Oh, I'm I looked right. for that. And did they have it? They did not. They did not mention a medical writer. They you said in the up. paragraph that Ooh. the first <laughs> author had the first go at it, and then the other authors, including employees of the sponsor, the manufacturer, could contribute. They, they could contribute. So they get the second go. Yes. I see. But the first author got the first go. Well, that's a step above. Yeah. It's a step yeah. above. All right. I so, anticipate these questions from you now. Oh, good, Dr. Olson. Well, yes. then let me ask you, did, did you look up the price of all the agents? I did. All right, tell us. So, I mean, it's actually, uh, if I calculate this correctly, and I did, this is a weight-based drug. <clears throat> so it's, um, the, the high dose is the approved dose now. It's five milligrams per kilogram. And you do a loading dose of um, uh, one and then uh, another dose two weeks later, and then it's every month thereafter. And so roughly for like an 80-kilogram man... Then it would be about one hundred thirty-five thousand a year. Now in the trial, they did it for fifty weeks. Is it was a full year, fifty-two weeks. Yeah. Well, how do you think people will use it in practice? Indefinite, will they not? I don't know. I'm guessing. I mean, what would be the reason to stop? Yeah, it I guess if why would you working? stop? If you stop it, and then people have a pain crisis when you want yeah. to restart it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that I think that that's what the company is counting on. Yeah. What's it? I mean. Uh, so it's it's funny that this this very selective P-selectin inhibitor, crizanlizumab, was a success. Now, there was an actual failed trial that hasn't been published, but it was a press release of rivapanzil. Oh, yes. And that failed, and it was a pan-selectin inhibitor. All uh, your favorite selectins. Every selectin. <laughs> and so that one, yeah. the press release came out about two months ago, and it was a phase three trial, and it failed. And their primary endpoint of pain crises. So... For whatever reason, I'd be interested to see when they publish that, if it ever comes out, uh, why they think a pan-selected inhibitor might not work. 
I think one interesting question that I have mm-hmm. with all these agents is, um, you know, L-glutamine reduction of vasoclusive crisis, uh, crizanlizumab yeah. reduction of vasoclusive crisis. Um, we're talking about sample sizes here, 60 people in crizanlizumab in the treatment arm, 130 people or so in the L-glutamine arm, um, uh, small sample sizes. I guess uh, with small sample sizes, um, with this P-selectin inhibitor, you know, with the L-glutamine, I think that the, the, the idea that there would be some sort of side effect that you're not aware of coming down down the road, that's probably lower because it's a simple amino acid mm-hmm. that Dr. Schatzel is probably drinking. Uh, I may have taken some today. Yeah. I'm, un- I'm unsure. You're unsure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You had some muscle For my this workout morning. this morning. Yeah. yeah. Um, but with uh. P-selectin, I mean, I think it is entirely possible that there's some safety signals we don't know about this drug, susceptibility <sighs> to infection, susceptibility yeah. to uh, bleeding, perhaps, um, that have yet to be proven. And we don't know things about longevity and things mm-hmm. like that. It is true. This molecule evolves over mil- millennia in humans and uh, and larger primates. So uh, for a purpose, you would there imagine. There must be. There's probably a lot of value to having it. So an intact piece of lectin. Yeah. Right. I see. It, I think yeah. one of the yeah. concerns is like you know if you this is sort of a part of wound healing maybe and if you inhibit this was raised by one of our colleagues yeah. here and if you block this mm. chronically is it going to pre a problem with like you know like you said infections and wound healing yeah chemotaxis of leukocytes yeah. right i mean i think that's the question and yeah. uh and the study just doesn't have the power or the scope it will never answer that and uh, i think now that the horse is out of the barn i don't yeah. think we're going to get many other studies on this but it topic. was randomized at least it was randomized yeah. oh, okay with a so, control arm yeah i mean i'm i'm guess i would say that uh it does better than a lot of oncology trials yeah, yeah. i mean yeah we know that one third oncology trials there's no <laughs> control arm. So yeah, you're already in, yeah. you're already a step above. I think it will come down to the real world uh, mm-hmm. data. Uh-huh. Maybe we'll, you we'll put see. some air quotes there. Yeah. I want listeners to know that because you, I think, <laughs> treating it facetiously a little bit. Well, I used to write papers called retrospective observational study. Yeah, but <laughs> and now they're all called real world experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. It's the greatest form of rebranding I've ever yeah. seen. I know. I, str- I used to struggle to publish those papers, but yeah. now we're all called the real world experience. Yeah. <laughs> used to be called retrospective chart review with missing data. Yeah. Now it's called real world. It's called Publon. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Um, what I will say is I think everyone who practices general hematology has treated sickle cell patients who really suffer from the disease. And despite our best care, they continue to have a lot of pain. And I, as a provider, really um, felt a lot for these patients. And I'm glad I have these options. And if they help people... I want to get these to them. So I'm going to, I have recommended glutamine. I'm going to try crizanlizumab. I don't think I'm going to use the uh, fluoxetor unless someone... He doesn't even want to know about it. Yeah, yeah, you don't need to pronounce it. Unless someone shows me a a valuable Mm endpoint. But I'm going to try and use these drugs because to me, uh, decreasing a pain crisis or days in the hospital is worthwhile. Uh, I agree. I would probably yeah. have the same thought. I would I would try crizanlizumab far sooner than I would try voxelator. I guess that's an easy one for me. Yeah. But I guess it's also, I mean, I I would think about voxelator if I really saw a patient who was suffering from severe anemia and uh, hemolysis, but I guess I haven't seen those types of phenotypes of sickle cell that much to really think about it. So, But they're out there. I guess I would also say, uh, you know, I think that it's uh, reasonable 
We talked about the glutamine over the counter. I think that that's a, you know, it's going to be hard to argue with somebody who wants to do that with their money. It's a discussion. It's a discussion. Um, the uh, crizenlizumab, uh, you know, my thoughts are there. Would it kill the FDA to ask him to do a phase three, just a simple phase three, get a little bit more sample size so we get some power to see things? Uh, I think that going forward, it might be a ni- it might be nice to get some sort of patient-reported outcome that does a good job of balancing uh, side effects with the benefit from vasoclusive crisis. I think that that's sort of a methodologic challenge because you know you got to pay some price for the fact that people have back pain, arthralgia, and you know as you're talking about GI discomfort from drinking their slurries. Um, uh, you got to balance that against the benefit that's being provided. Uh, I think what's interesting to me is that, um, you know, we struggle with hydroxyurea because of compliance issues. Yeah. I think we're going to struggle with L-glutamine for the issues that you raise because it's a compliance issue. But crizanlizumab, which is an IV medication administered mm-hmm. every, how many weeks was it? Four weeks. There's Four a, weeks. There's a loading dose and then you come in once a month. That might yeah. be the way around some of the compliance yeah. issues. That's and if, true. if there were a way to take uh, hydroxyurea and make it depo, that's a holy grail there, you know, to to mm-hmm. decrease the the requirement for daily compliance. Of course, the tough yeah. part of that drug is adjusting it to the neutrophils and things like that. So I guess there could be a scenario. I take it back, you know, where they, they did a, a subset of people who weren't on hydrea. There might be a role <clears throat> for this if, you know, people really couldn't, weren't compliant or adherent, and then you could really guarantee. But then you'd have to really get to the bottom of why they weren't adherent to it, because usually, I don't know. I think it's a tough, I mean, I agree with Dr. Schatzel that my heart has always, uh, you know, broken for people yeah. who have to key hospitalized over and over again with uh, painful occlusive crises. I've always uh, had, uh, you know, you always have empathy for all your patients, but I always had just a lot of empathy for those patients. Um, I think that, you know, we've all seen as hospital providers that there can be these sort of vicious cycles where there can be mistrust in the medical system because yeah. pain is not adequately treated, which leads to more mistrust in the system, which leads to more not adequately treated, and it's just a vicious feedback loop. and and. And, and you just don't see that with other genetic diseases like yeah, cystic fibrosis, like um, hemophilia. And, and, and that's what makes your heart break is that like this seems like a, just a bad cycle going on and we want what we can to break it. But I have this feeling that, you know, you can these all these new drugs can come out. But I feel like what would have the biggest effect is really just making more robust our, our management system in general, like having a more robust clinic and yeah. multidisciplinary kind of thing. So we've we've uh, sort of brainstormed how to do that. In our institution and really harnessing some of the ideas that the hemophilia center uses like having a nice transition program from children to adulthood uh in different clinics and having social work really available and having actually a strong connection with the community providers because you know we're taking care of a lot of these patients who don't necessarily live in the metro area and i think that would probably have a bigger effect on overall quality of life and and care of these people than just a new drug Mm, well played. Which is, I guess, what a lot of ASH is promoting, and they're actually, they've, they've got a whole new sickle cell kind of initiative in the past few years, so I think it's all really good. Dr. Schatzel, last words? We'll edit out the pause. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say I'm happy that we have drugs that appear to work in sickle cell. Um, I hope we get more, and I hope we have continued resources for this community. Well put. On that positive note, we'll conclude the first classical hematology chat. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes store. 
Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>